You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The person who is talking here is named Max DeLion. He's an arms dealer for the Spanish Republic, now seeking Russian anti-aircraft ammunition. The following day, DeLion made contact with one S. Kolb, a meager little man nobody ever noticed, and a spy. DeLion's customary spy, in his business, a necessary acquaintance. To reach Kolb, you called a certain number, a woman answered, you gave her a name, some name, maybe your name, and in time, Kolb would find you. He did travel for his work. You never knew where he was, but he always knew where you were. In this case, Kolb was apparently in Paris because he turned up at the café where DeLion went for lunch. DeLion was eating veal stew, took a bite, went to take another, and S. Kolb was sitting at the table. DeLion said the spring weather was fine, and how did one go about buying Soviet anti-aircraft ammunition? Kolb looked at the handwritten menu, summoned a waiter, and ordered the veal stew. Might as well have lunch, right, he said. You're my guest, DeLion said. Have a glass of wine. What a question you ask, Kolb said. His French was fluent, but not native. Surely he'd grown up somewhere and spoke the language, but where that was nobody knew, although there were plenty of theories. It was also said of Kolb that he was a British spy, but there were plenty of theories about that as well. And what if, Kolb continue, I said I didn't know. You often say it. Yes, but what if this time I were telling the truth? Then I'd ask how you might go about finding out. Here's the problem, Max. To find out about anything, you have to ask questions. And with what you need, you would be asking questions about Soviet military matters, which are secret, like everything else in the USSR. And when the Russians discover that somebody is asking such questions, they will want to know what's going on. They are extremely ticklish in this area, and they don't like to be tickled. Verstehe, Max, which meant you understand in Yiddish. Not that Kolb was Jewish, he wasn't, but he knew a few phrases and used them for emphasis. I do. Now I appreciate your asking me. I like to be asked questions, just as I appreciate hearing about any tidbit you happen to turn up in your work. So my first answer has to be, don't go poking your nose into Soviet secrets because it will produce the NKVD on your doorstep. No, I tell a lie, he laughed. It will produce the GRU, the military service, which is just as mean but twice as smart. Then what? Give it up? Stay safe? You? I've done it before. Really? Often? No, not often. All right, Max, you're a friend as far as it goes, so I'll let you talk to a certain man, a man who... a man who knows everything? No, no such man exists, but this one has now and then surprised me. I say now and then because I don't often use him, only once in a while, since I don't know much about him, and that makes me ticklish. Also, he is the oddest human being I've ever encountered, which is saying a lot, believe me. And his name? I've named him Professor Zed, As I have no idea of his real name, it's not what he calls himself. He reminds me of a professor, a professor from a foreign land who is no longer a professor. He knows things, all sorts of things, and he hates the fascists, but you must be careful. Why is that? Better these days, when someone knows what you're doing, that they don't know who you are. Very well, I'm warned. Kolb's veal stew arrived, and he ordered a carafe of red wine. So how do I find Professor Zed? Kolb chewed on the tough veal, then said, I will have to set it up. Someone will contact you with a time and a place, and you go alone. I am grateful for your help, Monsieur Kolb. Are you? I am. Well then, where have you been lately? Any place interesting? Alan Firth is the author of Night Soldiers, Dark Star, The Polish Officer, The World at Night, Red Gold, Kingdom of Shadows, Blood of Victory, Dark Voyage, The Foreign Correspondent, The Spies of Warsaw, Spies of the Balkans, and Mission to Paris. His new novel is Midnight in Europe. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Thank you for having me. Alan, 
when you embarked on this voyage, more than, I think, 30 years ago, you moved to Paris. Did you have any idea how deep your exploration would go, how long it would last? No, I had no idea. My first novel, Night Soldiers, is a doorstop. It was a 600-page manuscript because what I wanted to do was write a panoramic spy novel about the 1930s and early 1940s, and I carried it through to the end of the war. I never thought I'd write another one of these books. This was, in my mind, a one-time thing. That didn't turn out to be the case. <laughs> I really like this idea of what you're writing here. It's almost like a, a literary panopticon moving around Europe in the, the days before World War II. Talk about how you've gone about structuring the books and the collection of books in the years since you started. I have a method that I evolved. It involves very close study. First, I pick a country. Then I go to work to learn the political history of that country, say, from 1940 back to 1880 or something like that. And when I say learn it, I use a 1952 Encyclopedia Britannica, tiny print but the reason I use the 52 is that it was the articles written there were written right after the war and are sensitive to the war, less so as you move out in time. So once I really know the political history, I mean reading this thing 30, 35 times till I get it, because it's very confusing at first. You know, what is the Farmers' Party? But eventually I figure this out, and then I learn it, and then I know it. Now, once I know it, I produce or I imagine or I infer what the dark part of the political history is, the part that isn't written down but is probably there and would likely be there in the political history. Now, once I have the dark history, I'm looking for a character who might be involved in that history, meaning not particularly a character, but a profession, say, a senior police official or a Dutch captain of a tramp steamer or the French military attaché. It's a likely character. At that point, I'm ready to, to work out a kind of plot around the historical events. And that's how I do it. And, of course, that changes because Romania is going to be completely different from France, completely different from Spain, completely different from Bulgaria or Serbia or Sweden or anywhere else. Each, each country has its own lenses through which they looked at the world and looked at the war. And, of course, they're all completely different based on the experience of that country. And there was a lot of experience. I mean, there was World War I, huge empires, the Ottoman Empire, Austro-Hungarian Empire, very complicated period of world history and all kinds of conflict going on. After all, the war that started in 1914 didn't really end till 1945. It continued in the 30s. Um, and the particular focus in the 30s was the Spanish Civil War as to whether the European fascists would win or the democracies would win. And Midnight in Europe is about part of that at any event. I really like your picture of Europe because we always think of the Cold War as occurring in the 70s and 80s and 60s, but it made me realize the Cold War, as you pointed out, lasted between the end of the First World War and the beginning of the Second World War. It was a different kind of Cold War, though, wasn't it? Oh, very different. Very different. It, it focused on the fact that Germany decided it hadn't really lost the First World War. The, they talk about the Dolstas, the stab in the back. They didn't lose the war. They were betrayed. Um, that's not true. They did lose the war. But they couldn't face it. And so, with Hitler, they decided they would go back and try some more. 
and they began to rearm. Despite the treaty that said they couldn't, they found all kinds of secret ways of doing it. Meanwhile, other countries on the continent were terrified. They couldn't rearm. They hadn't yet recovered from the Depression, and they, it, they began to think that if they did rearm and start uh, you know, drafting larger armies, it would anger Hitler and cause a war. So they were, they were very passive, in a way, during that period, and, that's exact, and, and thereby caused the war. You know, Churchill has a great quote that has to do with um, Munich and the appeasement uh, and the giving away, basically, of Czechoslovakia to the Germans. And he said, you have had a choice between dishonor and war. You have chosen dishonor, and you shall have war. Churchill, uh, nothing quite like Nothing quite like that. <laughs> One of the things I think that makes your books so amazing are the fascinating characters you create, some for each book, some that pop up in all the other books. Talk about the decision when a character created for one book decides to pop up in another. Does that happen at your will, by your planning, or do the characters just do it of their own free will? Uh, that's a good point. You do not control your characters. They have lives of their own. And this begins to sound really crazy, get the butterfly net. But the fact is it's true. And the way it happens, suddenly you're writing a character and from the ends of your fingers come all this great stuff clearly somewhere in your mind you love writing about this character. You had no idea that you would. And sometimes the characters can be really strong and demanding. In that case, they stand out really in a good way in the book. And what happens next is people write me letters and say, oh, please bring back S. Kolb. I really liked him. And I agree. He's a great character. But I didn't know that until I wrote him, or Count Polanyi, the diplomat spy from the Hungarian embassy. It's very strange, but it does build a world, and it's peopled by these kinds of characters in Europe at the time of the 30s. You just used a phrase that I really like. You said, build a world. I'd like you to talk about building this world of the past because you have to do an incredible amount of research, yet they're also going to find gaps where you're going to let your imagination roam free and your characters come to life. But all of this is happening in the present. It's informed by the present. No matter how much history you study, which is great and, and makes the works authentic, still when we read this in the present, we can't help but think, oh my God, this is scary because this is too much like what's going on now. I don't try to do that. But it doesn't matter whether I try to do it or not because in history, certain periods are echoic. You can't help it. And you think as you go along, hmm, isn't that interesting? But it's not like a propaganda thing that I want to do. It's simply if I tell the truth about what happens, happened, it, it mirrors to some degree what goes on now because history is cyclic and it keeps coming back around to the same thing again and again and again. Um, I mean, you hope that someday we can break this kind of thing and that people won't be going to war and killing each other. But um, that is true, what you say, and, but I don't put it in. I don't, I don't try to say to the re I don't nudge the reader with my elbow and say, aha, see, that's what it's like today. I don't ever do that. If it's truly like that, the reader will find it. Well, I think that's one of the power of your books is that you... Uh, give us an idea of the, of the fact that history does indeed repeat itself. And when you see the past portrayed with such accuracy and with such passion and depth, we can't help but reflect, well, gosh, these same human technology may change, society may change, humans, not quite so much. Not quite so much. <laughs> uh, the, people are people. Um, you, we do, as humans, produce monsters like Hitler and Stalin, and we continue to produce monsters. And you wonder if there's anything that can ever be done. It seems somehow part of the whole human psyche that from time to time, one of these men, or women in some cases, will appear, take 
precedence suddenly on the front page of the newspaper, and it's like um, they are making a run for it. This is their time. Well, that's what Hitler thought. He was. It was his hour. It was his day. He felt that destiny had called on him to lead Germany into war. As we read your books, one of the things, too, that I really like is this sense of hindsight that we have is because you immerse us, you, what you have to do, and you do a great job about this, um, you immerse us in the lives of characters who have no idea or little idea what's going to happen next. They have fears, they have hopes, they have plans, but they don't know the history. We are reading this from the other side of history. We know what happened. And I think that as a reading experience is a really interesting uh, joy to find in your books. I, I am very, very consciously aware of that. I have what I call my anomaly alarm. You know, it's flashing red lights and bells and sirens and whistles and everything else when somebody says something that would suggest that he, the future is known to this individual. No, the future is not known to the people at the time. And I once had a history professor who said, you have to remember when reading history which halls were open to people at the time and which of those halls were lighted. That's an interesting remark. It's a very, very good remark. And if you think about it, it's true because especially in the political lives of nations, people have to make decisions. And the decisions are meaningful and the decisions are made based on total ignorance of what may happen in the future. Now, in, in your latest book, um, this is a book that's a little, that's pretty Paris-centric, which harkens back to where you began this series. So I talk a little bit about uh, reaching, recreating now in the present where you were some 30 years ago. There's, that's a significant chunk of history itself. <laughs> I guess so. Um, I, always, I, I moved to Paris uh, in order to write my first novel of this series. Um, and I think someone said to me, isn't that a little bohemian? <laughs> I guess so. And somebody else said to me, well, what, what if it doesn't work out? And I remember saying, well, then I'll starve to death in the streets of Paris. But it won't be the first time that that's been done, and it's not the worst thing that can happen. Um, if you're going to starve to death, it might as well be in the streets of Paris. And it, that turned out to be a very interesting decision for all sorts of reasons. Paris was a good place to write these novels. Um, I can't give you explicit reasons for that, but when you're in a place like Paris, you're in Europe. You're you're not you're not in America anymore. You're in Europe, and you feel it in your bones. Just walking the streets, listening to people talk. I remember the first few days I was in Paris, riding the metro and staring at people's faces. They weren't American faces. They were French faces, and they were set in a different way, um, and they looked different. And you could see that they were quite different than Americans, that they were another kind of people. This fascinated me, and especially fascinated me as a novelist, because I had all this room now to write about these people and not any people I'd ever known before. Let's talk a little bit uh, about Midnight in Europe. The, this is a, such a wonderful uh, piece of this bigger puzzle you're putting together. Uh, tell us a little bit about coming upon the character of Christian Farrar. It was um, the turn of the lawyer to have a book. I've had a police official, I've had a foreign correspondent, I've had a military attache, I've had uh, an actor, I've had a film producer. What these people have in common is that they were prominent in the secret wars of the 1930s, equally so lawyers. And for a long time, I didn't want to do it because there are a lot of people who go, oh, no, not a lawyer. You know, lawyers in, in some ways have a bad reputation. In fact, uh, that, that was said at Random House. And I said, no, 
I have to do this. Uh, he will be a good lawyer, um, which is to say the lawyer that you, that you need. When you need a lawyer, then you like lawyers. And that's just exactly what happens in this book. A, B, he comes from one of the great law firms in American history, which was the Coudere brothers uh, in New York and Paris. So he's an international lawyer. Um, he is also an emigre uh, from Spain, a more, more fugitive since he was taken to Paris at the age of 12, ultimately went to the law school of the Sorbonne, is very successful, is very bright, and eventually he's asked by the Spanish embassy to volunteer to help with the effort of arms buying. So this becomes an arms dealing book. And um, everything else in the plot and in the book proceeds from that decision. I really like this character, and I like the international vibe that he brings to it because he's a Spanish emigre living in France, but also living, we see him in America. So talk about creating this man who, from the get-go, seems kind of rich and full of depth. Well, one of the things, you know, you what you do with characters is you decide on traits, what is this person like? What what distinguishes him from other people? And the traits, there are two particular traits that um, uh, Farrar has. Certainly he's a humanist, he's brilliant, and he's sensitive to other human beings. He has a family that he's protecting. Um, he's installed them in a house in Louveciennes outside Paris, and he cares terribly for them. It's his father, his mother, his unmarried sister, his grandmother. And he periodically in the book goes out and visits with them and in toward the end of the book realizes that it's time to protect them. And when he's in New York at Coudere on, on Rector Street, he meets another lawyer who invites him for a dinner, as people would. And ultimately, he winds up renting an apartment on West End Avenue in New York for $68, I might add, $68 a month. So that's what distinguishes him. He's a good guy. Now, for each book, do you have to kind of keep a Bible for, in terms of what money was worth, what the argot of the time was, how people measured the time, what the weather was, and and, uh, all the particulars? Absolutely. I have a table, sunrise, sunset, every month, you know, two days in each month, um, for uh, from Paris, and and from there, I can work it an hour backwards uh, for Russia. I I can find my way after that. But it, you have to know that Northern Europe is way north, so that in the summertime the sun sets really late, and that becomes important in a book. If you want to say it was dusk, well, what time is it? You know, it's not five o'clock unless you're in the winter time. Um, so I do keep all that. Not all of it is written down. By now, a lot of it's in my head. And um, local customs and what books people were reading, what movies they were watching, all that information is available. I've dug it up over time, and now I have a library, and I kind of know where to find things. I'm not all that organized as that sounds, frankly. But, but yes, I do have, I do have all that information. Well, it seems to me, too, that as a writer, having worked at this for so long, you must have internalized so much of this stuff that it uh, just comes out really crisply. Yes, I, I have internalized it. I basically, when I write these books, I live in 1937 or 1938 or 1940. It's very odd. It's really like... Being crazy, I live in that period. Yes, I, I, I'm also in 2014, and I have to pay the electric bill, et cetera, et cetera. But that's very minor league compared to the fact that most of the time I'm thinking about the novel. A lot, you do a lot of writing when you're not behind your typewriter, in my case, a typewriter. Um, and, and that's very, very important if you're going to do that, that you know know the facts on the ground about where you are, how life was at that time, what people did, how they felt about things. Yes, I've internalized all that. I I love how succinct these books are. 
I mean, this is an amazing feat to be able to tell so much story and build the world so complicated and give all these nuances and details in what in some books might just be like a chapter or part one. You've got an entire novel, a, a, long, a, a lot of story with a lot of characters. Does a lot fall onto the floor when you write? Oh, yes. Oh, dear me. Uh, I, I, I make enormous use of the waste paper basket. It's one of my most important tools because any writer will tell you it's all in the revision. Everything happens in revision. Yes, you get some first draft and you'll get a, you know, sometimes a great line will come out and you can keep that, but much of it has to be gotten rid of and thrown out and rewritten until you have what you want. Um, and that takes me a while. Um, I'll typically write two pages of new dialogue, new new book, you know, pages 38 and 39, say. And I'll look it over briefly that day. The following day, I will revise it. And by the time that revision is done, I know it's perfect. By the third day, I'm back at it, and I now know it isn't perfect at all, and that it has to be rewritten more than that, and I don't mean one time. I'll sit there for hours revising this material, and at the end of the day, I'll write two new pages, but that can be 15 minutes, whereas the revision is about three hours. I, I really love your prose. It has a really interesting feel to it, and I'm wondering, uh, this must, must, must come out of the revision, but I'd like you to just talk about how the language rings for you because these novels have the sensibility and the feel as if they were written in the period in which they unfold, which makes them even richer, I think. Well, that's important. And I do a lot of reading in the period. And as you know, you uh, all writers are readers before they're writers. And as I've read books from the period, you start to internalize the rhythm of the prose, the rhythm of the books that were written at the time. I want these to seem like they were written contemporaneously. Um, I also, in the beginning, not so much anymore, I evolved a kind of style in the first two or three books that almost suggested translation from another language. I don't know quite how I was able to do that, but a lot of the books I read were in translation, and there was a certain quality that's different than something that's written in the original language. I don't know why I did that, but I liked the way it sounded. Now, I, I really love this, this particular novel, and one of the things I love about it is the way you look at technology, the way we experience in this book, in the time, train transport, automobile, planes, how people got around. Talk about how much influence that has on you as you write and as you plot. Oh, enormous influence. Enormous influence. Um, I, you know, I... I have a woman who uh, is my kind of wardrobe mistress and helps me dress the women in my books properly for the 30s. I had a conversation with her about stockings, and I said, well, you know, you don't have nylons till, nylon till 39, so they have to be cotton stockings, and in this case, black cotton stockings. And she said, yes, and there was a beat, and she said, with a seam up the back. And I thought, oh, thank you, Susan. <laughs> you just made this book some percent better with that kind of small detail that's very telling in a novel. Um, the reader is very affected by it, and I put it—you know—I will put that in every line if I possibly can, because it 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 has reality to it as to how people got around, as to what it was like to drive on Polish roads. But that's all from all from memoirs and books I've read. I make notes um, and store it up, and then ultimately I just learn it. I can tell you that the automobile of choice in Poland for the terrible roads of the 1930s was the American Buick. It was a very tough car. All the diplomats drove them. 
and um, the Buick features prominently in this book, and there's a different Buick in The Spies of Warsaw. I, I love the Buick scenes in this book. It's a lot of fun. You know, and that's one thing that's interesting, too, is that even though the themes you're dealing with are serious, the times are really terrible, and we know they're only going to get far worse. These books also have a, a large element of fun in them, enjoyment in reading them and in seeing these characters play out. So I'd like you to talk about balancing kind of the tragic, wistful aura that you bring to this with the fun of just experiencing a great story well told. I am in the business of entertaining people. I do not want to teach anybody anything ever. I am uh, a novelist of consolation. I want to be the person you go to when you've had a really miserable day and you want to escape. You want to be somewhere else. You don't want to be in San Francisco on that Tuesday. You would much prefer to be in Warsaw in 1937, and that's where I will take you. That's my job. My job is, I call it, high escape fiction, um, and it's meant for for escape, to, for people to escape. I mean, that's a, that's, novels are supposed to do that, or they, I think they're supposed to do that. They're not supposed to be heavy or instructive or philosophical or anything like that. I'm out to get the reader, get a hold of the reader, keep hold of the reader, make sure they keep reading, make sure they have a good time. Other people, if they want to have sermons, that's their business. I don't do that. Well, I, I think what, I love the way you create these characters because they're so much fun to be around. And, and I think the guy I really liked in this novel was Max de Leon. So talk about because I can tell whenever he's on the page that I, I have the feeling that uh, Alan First is having a, a grand time as well. Absolutely. When I, I knew I needed to have a kind of gangsterish arms dealer in this book. So that person would also have to be funny, smart, interesting, with a really wild history. And suddenly, as I sit there, sat there, the name Max DeLion occurred to me. And I went, oh, thank you, Lord. What a great name that is. So after that, I generated the character. He's going to come back in the next book. I'll tell you that right now. I really like him as a character. Because the way I work, the central character doesn't have the great lines. The central character is, in a sense, a hero, but he's also the person who hears things, the person who sees things. So that the really great lines and the great action all fall to the people around him. Um, he, I mean, other people do it differently, and they have a main character who shoots and runs and jumps and drives. Farrar does not do that. None of my central characters do that. They're all concerned with profession. They're all concerned with trying to do the right thing in an evil world, but they are, they are not the ones who deliver the good lines. They are not the ones uh, who do the interesting things. Well, you know, it, it strikes me, too, that that reinforces the vibe of Europe that you're trying to create because you're creating a Europe where anybody you look at might not be who they seem. And they might be saying one thing but meaning something completely different. And it's there's this kind of a sense of paranoia almost around you. And a main character who just listens and takes it in is the best equipped to survive. I guess that's true, but I've always done it. All my lead characters are like that. They're all survivors. Um, I get emails and people say, well, what happens to this person after the end of the book? And I can only write back and I can say, this person is basically an ingenious person and with a little luck will survive the war. I don't know what else to say. I don't know really exactly what happens to them, but I know that they continue on. I don't kill major characters. Now, the, the plot of this book um, is really interesting because it hinges on international treaties that prevent and allow some arm trades and these very odd uh, 
um, alliances between Russia and and Spain. And uh, the only war that was currently active at Europe in the time was was the Spanish Civil War. So we essentially, the Spanish Civil War, in a sense, is playing uh, in the stead of the entirety of World War II that was just waiting to break out around it. Well, it was pivotal. It was pivotal, the Spanish Civil War. If the Spanish Republic had defeated the forces of Hitler, Mussolini, and Franco, there would not have been a Second World War. But they were never going to defeat these people because no one would give them armament or replacement parts or planes. Um, they were crippled by the paranoia of Great Britain and France and to some degree the United States. Nobody helped them. They tried to help themselves. This book is about how they tried to help themselves by buying arms on the black market, by bribery, by any way they possibly could. But they were fated not to be able to win the war. Ergo, we had World War II. We would not have had World War II if Hitler had lost and been discredited um, by his adventures in Spain. But, um, in fact... Franco won that war. Germany won that war. And as the historians like to say, I love this word, Hitler was emboldened. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One of the things I think is really interesting about this book is the way that uh, they are getting different armaments. And one of the ways that that you talk about is um, through the bureaucracy of the train system by playing with with uh, lading notices and scheduling uh, different track runs. I think this is a really fascinating look at a Europe that whose technology has advanced beyond the ability of the society to control it. It's kind of like the proto-version of the Internet. Yeah, uh, because science never stopped working, industry never stopped working, and you had fine engineers working on this. Uh, German, the Germans were very, very good in engineers. They made really good weapons, but the Brits were great scientists. They had radar, and then they found a way to put radar in airplanes, and they found a way to do this, and they found a way to do that. It's very complicated. I have to simplify it as best I can, or rather explain it to the reader so that the reader really understands what I'm talking about. The worst thing you can do is be so opaque that the reader doesn't get it. So I have to lay it out and find ways, comparisons, metaphors, whatnot, as to what this stuff looked like, how it worked, whether it was any good or not. And it's a constant surprise to me. Uh, 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 Do you know what I mean? Because I didn't know how much these artillery shells weighed. I didn't know how an anti-tank gun really worked. But I've, I, you, you are drawn into the technology of the time by the uh, actions of uh, secret operations. You can't resist it. You have to do it. Um, the thickness of tank armor mattered a great deal in this war, and especially in the run-up to the war, as these nations decided we need thick tank armor because these tanks will attack or these tanks will defend, so we're going to do them differently. That stuff matters, and it's, it's a challenge to a writer to make it, in some sense, interesting and keep the reader happy, in a way, and not, and not just go off into the, into the gloom. Well, I, I think part of this, too, is due to your, you have very adept at plotting, at keeping things moving around and, and keeping so many moving parts in motion for us. So I'd like you to just talk about uh, how that works for you as a writer. Does this all just unfold sequentially, or do you have to, like, kind of throw something together and then, like, restitch it like uh, Frankenstein? No, I don't do that. What I do have is some kind of an internal fiction clock. Now, how that works, I don't know, but I know that it does work because I'll be working on something for a while and I'll go, "Eh, I'm tired of this, time to take a trip. So I put something in the plot where it's now necessary for them to leave and go to Prague. But the reason I do that has to do with the way 
the novel affects the reader. I feel like if I'm tired of it, the reader's tired of it. So it's time to move. Let's go someplace. Let's do something different. Just, just, just in the way people do. But it isn't based on any um, structural um, outline that I've drawn up. Yeah, another key aspect of the appeal of your work, I think, is your ability to work in um, realistic romances and, and the way that men and women mix in these novels. And that's not the way we mix now. It is the way we mix then. And you do a good job of making it seem true to the time. I work incredibly hard at this, this part of the book the romantic part or the erotic part, any way you want to put it. I want it to be just like what the reader does. I don't, I don't have a James Bond bone in my body. Nobody makes love standing up or with the woman seated on the kitchen counter or all the other nonsense you see mostly in the movies. I want men and women, because this, these scenes are written from both points of view, uh, a lot of uh, spy novelists write all this from the men's point of view, that the man comes and conquers the woman and this and this. I don't do that. Both men and women are present in these couplings that I have in the book. And um, I think a lot of people like that, and I have more and more women readers for that very reason. I write, like to write strong, independent women who play their own part in everything, including love affairs. And that brings us to the Marquesa. What a great character she is. You had a lot of fun with her, didn't oh, you? Oh, Lord, didn't I ever. <laughs> I'm, and in, and at the beginning, I didn't really know how that would work out. Mm -hmm. But as I dressed her and as I showed her comportment, I think the line is something like, she sat there um, in in the office of, of the Crudere Law Firm in Paris, but oh, did she ever sit. <laughs> and it goes on to describe how her heels were together, how her back was straight, how her gloves were off and in her lap, and how her back, you know, how she looked, how she was wearing a hat with a veil so that you couldn't quite see her eyes. I, ha I began to have a very good time with it. And the way you do that is you add a detail and it works and then you add another and then you add another and you just see how much you can do with it. Now, one thing, too, that I really like in your books are the set pieces. Uh, for example, uh, the, the some of the scenes in the rail yards and, and uh, the in particular Castillo's story. And, and I'd like you to talk about when you're kind of crafting these pieces, it's almost like a, it plays very movie-like for us as readers. Do you, um, have, do you sketch out the geography of what you're doing and, and so we know, always know where we are and what's, who's where? Oh, absolutely. Uh, but no, not really, because often with a set piece, I don't exactly locate it in time. It, it, I know more or less in time, and the reader has to know more or less in time. But I don't have um, I don't have a timetable. Um, and again, with set pieces, it's the same as travel. In other words, I'm tired of the consciousness of the main character. I'm going to go into another character's mind and give that person a chance to solo, as in jazz, for a while, and then we'll come back to the story. I don't know. It's all purely subjective and purely instinctive. You're, we're 13 novels, am I correct? Yes, correct. This is the 13th. 13 novels. 12A. <laughs> so we're at about, I'd say, 3,500 pages. Say something like that. This is a pretty big Russian novel at this point. At a very big Russian <laughs> novel with long chapters. And I realized about five books ago that this was all one book. And that you could actually put it between two covers, but it would be awfully big and heavy. I mean, it would really be triple Tolstoy. Still, in the same way, it, the books work that way as they shift around from country to country and character to character, yet it's the same history that's affecting all of them. And that unites all the books into one story. Do you know when that story ends? It ends in 1942, and there's a reason for that. 
I write basically from 1933, which is the ascent of Hitler. We go up through the 1934-1936 purges in the Soviet Union. We go 36 to 38, Spanish Civil War, 38, appeasement, Munich, 39, um, the invasion of Poland, 1940, the defeat of France, the Battle of Britain in 1940. Things are just getting worse and worse and worse, and it really looks at this point like Hitler's going to do it because no one's able to stop him. However, 1941, um, Japan attacks the United States. That changes everything. The United States comes into the war, and in and they start supplying the Russians with trucks and spam. And, you know, you put spam in a Russian, put him on a truck, and he'll kill anything in his path. <laughs> that's what we did, and that's what happened. And then you come to 1942. Outside Stalingrad, the defeat of the Sixth Army and the surrender of von Paulus, the German general. At that point, everybody in Europe knew that the Nazis were finished. And the whole feeling in Europe changed. It had been, we're all going to die, we're all going to be conquered, we've got to fight to the death to resist this, and we're ready to fight. 1942, these people have lost. Now, how do I go about surviving until they get around to actually admitting it? Very, very different. That's so fascinating. Now, you, you were talking about the Russians, and one of the things I loved in this book were the Russian gangsters. Uh, not a new invention, as many have thought. Right. <laughs> no, no. But the, I, I, I've read enough about them that um, I kind of have a good feeling about them. Remember now, Babel wrote, Isaac Babel um, wrote about the Moldavanka and all the Jewish gangsters. Uh, what was his name? Benya Creek. Uh, is his gangster's name. I mean, Babel was a fabulous writer, and they shot him in 1940. Um, and so it's not like there's no source material for this as to how the gangs operated, what they were like. Um, in fact, I ultimately derived a kind of nickname for this book after it was done, uh, and I call it Gangsters versus Fascists. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. It that's is exactly right. Not only that, I don't think anybody ever wrote such a novel. Not that I know about. No, I really like that. And that's, I think, one of the appeals of it is that you do have a, a kind of a crime, a mixture of crime fiction in espionage fiction and war fiction. The war, and that's a very interesting uh, uh, prickly mix to play with. Uh, yes, it is. I, I like it. It's very heady and volatile. Um, but I like the idea because the gangsters, as all, all gangsters, have their own ethic, you know, have their own feeling about the way things ought to be, their own version of honor. And that was surely violated by the Nazis, completely so, um, who didn't play fair ever in any way. So you have these two very powerful groups of people opposing each other in this book. Uh, and I, the, I like that war. That's a good war. And in this book, the gangsters win for the moment. Spain's going to lose the war. But they do successfully manage to move ammunition and guns from the manufacturers uh, into the port of Valencia in Spain. I don't want to give anything away, but that's what happens. Now, uh, I, I think you do a great job with the Nazis, too, because um, we see them before we knew everything, how bad it was. And I think you do a great job of giving us this idea of what essentially seems like a bureaucracy, the ultimate bureaucracy kind of manufactured out of human razor blades. That's basically what it was. Um, a lot of the people who were in the Nazi party couldn't have cared less about the Jews. These were opportunists and criminals, a lot of them. And when you read about who they really were and what they had done previously, uh, Heinrich Himmler the scourge of the Gestapo had been a chicken farmer. Um, a lot of these people, uh, the, uh, what's his name, the um, prime minister, the foreign minister of Germany, uh, I can't think of his name right now, just I'm blocking it, 
had been a, a champagne salesman. They put a V-O-N in front of his name. Um, and again and again and again, that's what you see. These were not major people. Now, they did have major people. Uh, the German intelligence services were run by former lawyers. Uh, these people were smart. They were capable. They knew what they were doing. And they were in positions of incredible power. I'm talking about Schellenberg and people like that. Um, but but I, I try to do realistic versions. They don't have steel teeth and they don't slab, slobber. They're not monsters. Um, some of them were monsters, but um, a lot of them were what is called, um, like Eichmann was described uh, in German as a Schreibtischmorder, which means desk murderer, which is a phrase that I think is particularly interesting. I, I would agree. When you write these books, do you travel to the cities you're writing about just before you write the books? I have in some instances, but I lived in Europe for 10 years, and I learned how Europe worked, how the cities worked, how the towns worked, how the villages worked, and I know that in my bones because I learned it by osmosis, by living there. I have been in most of the places I write about, anywhere from two days, in the case of Salonika, for Spies of the Balkans, to years in Paris. Do you know where you're traveling, where and when you're traveling to next? I'm thinking about it. I'm not sure. I don't like to say because it may turn out that I do something different. I, I have a lot of, in the few months leading up to the time when I start production writing, I have an incredible number of false starts where I go, oh, that's a great idea. And then the next day I go, oh, Alan, what a terrible idea. Where did that come from? I'm very verbal with myself and obscene, too. I won't repeat it on the radio, but I'm very hard on myself when I'm trying to figure out how to write these books. I, I like this idea of production writing so you you kind of like set yourself up with a schedule so to speak as a writer you're you're it seems strikes me you must be very disciplined you have to be I have a contract with my publisher that calls for a, a book every two years to be delivered at a certain time and I have to keep to that I'm late sometimes and they get mad at me but not in a bad way um, I just can't stand the idea of submitting something that isn't right I have to feel that it's right and that it's the best I can do, and only then will I turn it in. But I do have a schedule. Um, I write two pages a day, six days a week, and my manuscripts are 320 pages long. That means 160 days at two pages a day, and I have to keep to that because that's the only way you can write a long piece of fiction like this. You can't sort of revisit it and come back and take days off and decide, oh, I don't feel like writing today, no dice. You can't do it that way. Uh, as many people have learned to their sorrow, if you don't stay at it, you'll never finish it. Well, I hope you're going to stay at it for quite some time. I'm enjoying the heck out of this uh, journey into the past. I've been speaking with Alan First. His new novel is Midnight in Europe. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.